Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 13. Borderline. A balancing act between psychological extremes. In this episode, we will move into the borderlands of the psyche. Extreme experiential states that for those afflicted and those they are close to can as a rule involve all sorts of impositions. We have already heard in the previous episode about structural disorders. These concern far-reaching deficits in the range of emotional experience and experience of the self those forms of disturbance that interfere severely in the structure of the self. The prototype of a severe structural disorder is, to some extent, the so-called borderline personality disorder, also called emotionally unstable personality disorder of the borderline type. In psychoanalysis, this type of disorder is also often assigned to the so-called early disorders. Since borderline personality disorder ordinarily stems from massive deprivations and instabilities in early childhood, that is, as an infant or a toddler, studies show that the majority of borderline patients have had traumatic experiences in early childhood. As the term personality disorder already suggests, Borderline is a serious form of illness that, in a fundamental way, is woven into the personality, or to be more exact, that touches on an essential part of identity. Therapeutic treatment is possible, with various approaches available, albeit treatment is often an arduous and lengthy journey, yet can, however, be worth it. In popular material on borderline, but also even among experts, the onset of borderline personality disorder is located, time and again, in adolescence and early adulthood. This, however, is in most cases only partially true. What is true is that the symptoms characteristic of borderline personality disorder reveal themselves with particular clarity in adolescence, the age at which the disorder becomes manifest. For the most part, however, the origin of borderline dates back to much earlier disturbances, not infrequently also traumas, which is also why it affects the very being of those afflicted in such a fundamental way. However, Diagnosing borderline is sometimes not so easy at all, and should thus also not be done causally. Caution is especially necessary with adolescents and young adults, whose personal development is not yet complete, or is oftentimes still very flexible and easy to influence. For a correct diagnosis, on the other hand, it helps to work out the appropriate treatment along with the patient, or rather an adequate plan for treatment. Unfortunately, some clinicians primarily base their diagnosis on the alleged criterion of so-called self-injurious behaviour, 
which plays a role in many borderline disorders, but to be sure, by no means all, and, by the same token, not all self-injurious behaviour is indicative of borderline. What are the general characteristics of borderline personality disorder? According to the ICD-10, the established diagnostic manual of the WHO, there are some descriptive signs that indicate a borderline disorder. These include profound disturbances in one's self-image, impulsive behaviour, a chronic feeling of emptiness, massive fear of abandonment, and intense efforts to avoid it, self-damaging behaviour up to parasuicidal or suicidal acts. In addition, various other characteristic symptoms often occur. First and foremost, a chronic free-floating anxiety, i.e. fear that does not attach itself to an object or a topic, but is diffusely just simply there but also obsessive-compulsive symptoms are not uncommon. Dissociative reactions occur very frequently. Paranoid traits, sometimes also intermittently occurring pseudo-psychotic or psychotic states, like, for instance, delusional thoughts. What is characteristic is that borderline phenomena especially occur in emotionally meaningful relationships, that are experienced as highly problematic by those afflicted. A loved one can be highly idealised, yet just as easily despised and hated, whereby these changes oftentimes swing back and forth radically, which is why the arrangement of borderline patients' relationships is usually very unstable and crisis-ridden. This is, admittedly, an extremely broad spectrum, one could say a mishmash of symptoms. But now, what does that actually mean? How exactly should we imagine this? It is, after all, not uncommon for patients to have a poor self-image, to find themselves in a roller coaster of relationships, to feel empty and depressed, and yet still be far from borderline. We will come back to the concept of structural disorder as it is used in psychodynamic approaches. In psychoanalysis, there are many different conceptions and theoretical approaches to borderline syndrome, and the term can be used quite differently. What many conceptions of borderline have in common is that they apply to those patients who cannot be located on the level of either neurosis nor be included among psychotic or schizophrenic forms of illness. Here, neurotic means psychological problems that arise in the face of a relatively successful ego development, in which stable inner structures could develop. In contrast to borderline disorders, Conflicts occur here in a limited form and are easier to treat, even if they can sometimes become quite severe. One speaks of psychotic when there have been massive disturbances during the development of the ego, which in a fundamental way have disturbed thinking and being itself. Here, what is characteristic 
is that the perception of reality is reshaped by the disease in a pronounced way. Reality testing, one of the fundamental abilities of the psyche, is no longer intact. Borderline moves between these two poles, alternating in phases between a neurotic and a psychotic position. Borderline. The big name that today comes up frequently in relation to borderline is that of contemporary psychoanalyst Otto Kernberg. He describes borderline disorder not as a personality disorder, but rather as a personality organisation. This shift of emphasis may appear minimal, but in fact makes a big difference and, among other things, not only makes a much more precise assessment possible, but also points to psychoanalysis's completely different understanding of illness. In the sense that it always takes the function of symptoms into account, and does not understand them merely as deficits. To be sure, this shift in emphasis also means a certain shift for the patient group. For here, attention is not only paid to which symptoms are present, but also to the way in which the psyche organises and structures itself. Borderline here means a specific attempt to organise a structurally weakened ego that has had massive developmental difficulties due to devastating or traumatic early attachment experiences. This can, for example, be massive instabilities in the relationship to the parents, severe aggression, such as verbal or physically violent quarrelling between the parents, the hopeless abandonment and loneliness of the child, or, to the contrary, intrusive closeness by the parents, up to physical, such as sexual, assaults on the child, while at the same time being shaped by a subliminal or even overt hatred. With this fundamental uncertainty, certain ego functions were not able to develop, could develop only insufficiently, or were actively disrupted. The symptoms that are so characteristic of borderline are attempts to establish, given the means available, a substitute for ego functions, which, at least in certain places, are less integrated and have a less mature psychological structure. If we want to understand borderline, we must think ourselves into early childhood and reconstruct the effects of an attachment trauma on these early forms of experience. Any trauma at any stage of life represents a horrific and monumentous experience. But when trauma occurs in early childhood attachment relationships, say, the parent toward their young child, these devastating consequences are compounded. For here, the aggressor and the protector are sometimes one and the same person. The child experiences the person whom they are existentially dependent upon also as the very same person who plunges them into existential distress or does not protect them from such traumatic experiences. Toddlers have no ability to separate themselves from the source of the trauma, 
to call the police or the like. The child is existentially reliant upon the parents, concerning almost every sphere of life, and, most of all, in relation to its need for love. Without the parents, the child cannot survive psychologically. If the parents are also those who attack this psychological survival, the child faces an unanswerable situation that has disastrous consequences for psychological development. This will turn up in all the later forms of borderline experience. Although, while some of the symptoms of borderline disorder mirror the traumatic experiences, others display attempts to deal with this experience. What thus is characteristic of borderline disorders, depending on the form, is that it does not necessarily affect all forms of experience or all social relationships, but particularly those situations and relationships with significant emotional meaning, i.e. those qualities inherent to attachment. Perhaps the most devastating effect of early childhood attachment trauma is the absent or fragile experience of continuity. It is especially in the early phase of development, the infancy period, when rhythms and emotional stability are especially important, even existential. To begin with, an infant is constituted primarily by the presence of its parents and through them experiences itself and the world as meaningful and reasonable. It is through touch, rhythms and continuous and reliable loving devotion that an infant comes to know that it is there, exists, has a relation to the world. The child does not yet have a stable conception of the self. It receives a sense of self and the feeling of finiteness from the outside, from its attachment figures. In the earliest phase, this is done concretely through physical touching and enveloping, but also through the envelopment of voice, smell, and all kinds of parental attention. Only under the protection of this parental cover does a psychic skin gradually form, which gives the child the feeling of being a whole self, continuously connected with itself and the world. If, all of a sudden, the parents are radically absent, or if physical contact abruptly turns into violence and pain, then this delicate experience of continuity is torn. The child experiences itself as if falling into a bottomless void, feels a horrible emptiness. One could also say it dies a psychological death. For the radical loss of attachment and love means nothing else to the soul of a young child. When experiences of continuity are lacking, cracks appear in this experience, which are especially felt later in life, when emotionally significant experiences and relationships are involved. Emotional experiences and meaningful relationships, like in puberty with the first feelings of intense love, touch on an early trauma. In the face of the threat of inner nothingness, 
the experience of the self and its boundaries then becomes so fragile that something has to be done from the outside in order to stabilize it again, in order to feel a limit and to gain a footing once again. Often, this is attempted through some extreme stimuli, such as the excessive practicing of sports, but can also occur in more dramatic forms, such as through sensations of pain, whether that be physical or emotional. Seen from the outside, so-called cutting appears irrational, yet it is, among other aspects, an inner psychic attempt to restore inner coherence, to feel one's boundaries, and, with it, one's own self, which is also why it cannot be given up so easily. Doing without these efforts of self-regulation can mean extreme feelings of emptiness and catastrophic fear, while at the same time also of anger and hatred. Behavioural therapy approaches, for example with the help of so-called skills, try to replace the more harmful forms of this hunger for stimulus with less harmful ones. Doing sports excessively instead of getting drunk excessively, or biting on a chilli pepper instead of cutting one's skin with a razor blade. Against the background of an early attachment trauma, the crisis-ridden character of the borderline patient's relationships also becomes intelligible. While it may often be possible to enter into and shape less emotionally charged relationships in a more mature way, such as work relationships, the entire traumatic quality of early attachment experiences is brought to bear with emotionally significant relationships, such as with a partner. Just as in every normal relationship, the partner turns in part into an attachment figure. Yet here, attachment is linked to chaotic experiences. Borderline patients feel excessively dependent on their partners, as if they could not exist without their constant love and attention, which, in psychological experience, restores the situation from early childhood. As is often the case with traumatised persons, it is not uncommon that they are led by a trance-like certainty towards fatefully selecting a partner who is just as violent and traumatising as was experienced in earlier relationships. It is as if the psyche was unconsciously seeking out the very same situation, again and again, perhaps an inner attempt to cope with and integrate a certain experience, and yet this can lead fatally to re-traumatisation. In addition to the feeling of dependency, those suffering from borderline can feel a deep hatred towards their partner, especially when the partner turns out not to be as perfect and ideal as was initially attributed to them, as if the partner had transformed back into that failing and existentially disappointing parent, someone who, in such a horrific way, has done one harm, and, at the same time, upon whom one is utterly dependent. 
And thus, the hatred is perilous to one's own self, for it simultaneously threatens to destroy what one needs for survival, the other, their love, their devotion. It is between these poles that perceptions of relationships fluctuate, sometimes in extreme ways. Feelings of emptiness and fear, idealization and a sense of dependency, as well as anger and hatred, are among the characteristic affects of borderline states, which for those afflicted can be avoided only with difficulty. However, for a broader understanding, we must return to the meaning of early childhood traumas. Just as the multiple faces of the parents are incompatible to the child, at one point loving devotion, emotional meaningfulness, and then once again full of hatred, even violent or abusive, so too is it for the child with their own emotional life. They feel love and hatred towards those attachment figures, and yet have no opportunity to integrate as a whole these ambivalent emotional impulses. In short, the child learns little tolerance for emotional ambivalences. In life and in relationships, however, there are many shades and grey areas. There is no black and white. When we think of our partners, what ordinarily comes to mind are the sides of them that we like and the sides we like less but we can form an overall picture of our partner all the same. In other words, we can integrate their different sides and facets. This is an ability children still have to learn, as is revealed, for example, in the well-known epithet, bad mummy, something that children mean with all their heart, but about which we as adults sometimes have to rather chuckle. However, the ability to better sustain and integrate ambivalences, step by step, can only develop if experiences of difference and the frustration of being different are possible, while also not being so drastic as to completely tear apart inner continuity. The feeling that the mother may also make mistakes, or may at times not be there, must be permitted to arise. But that, as a general rule, there are many things that she does do well. That, in fact, the mother is there. Only once a basic feeling of security is in place can ambivalences, conflicts and uncertainties also be fully endured. If experiencing these types of relationships is not possible, or, to be more precise, if these qualities differ too radically from one another, it then becomes necessary to keep apart what cannot and must not come together. The loving, devoted father then stands utterly untouched next to the violent, frightening father. Psychoanalytically, one also speaks of a split in experience, the psychological separation of incompatible states or attributions. The problem is rather that a person cannot merge 100% with any one quality. 
No one can be only good, only accommodating, only friendly, or only evil, only selfish, only angry. Due to this tendency to split, a person with borderline very often has extreme inner demands on others, but also on him or herself. There is splitting even in connection with the experience of self. If these demands are fulfilled, the person often experiences themselves as grandiose, ingenious and creative. To them, everything appears attainable and possible. If these demands are not fulfilled, or only imperfectly, their disposition suddenly changes, feelings of utter failure, self-hatred and destructive rage take hold. In this logic, one can only be good or evil, with only a very thin line in between. These splitting tendencies, which apply in relation to oneself and in relations with others, explain essential elements of the borderline experience. It was and is unbearable that a person so beloved could at the same time be so evil. But this applies to the self just as well. For deep down, often it is the destructiveness and the devastation in one's own self that is feared. The horror is directed at something recognised in oneself as bad, evil or worthless. This is because one fateful dynamic most notable in the case of early traumatizations is incorporating into one's own psychological structure a part of the evil one has been subjected to, where it is then experienced as a part of the self. Something in one's own soul that threatens to obliterate the needy part of the self. You are what happens to you. This sentence has special significance for early childhood development. At the same time, there is often a deep and conscious identification with the traumatic experience. According to the principle, how worthless and bad must I be for something like this to happen to me? But dynamics of this sort are very complex and shall not be further elaborated here. We will deal with this in more detail in our episodes on the psychoanalysis of trauma. In the final analysis, the following applies more pointedly. Only that which is good can survive. Evil is an attack on existence. Neither I nor the other dare have anything evil inside. Whereas for persons with a more mature ego development, this ambivalence between good and evil would cause fewer inner difficulties. They can grant themselves such ambivalences, or rather, can let them exist side by side. Therapy for borderline, regardless of the school, means the creation of mental space, be that by slowly replacing, changing and adapting behavioural patterns, according to the principle, chilli peppers instead of knives, or, as is done in mentalization based psychotherapy, by gradually changing the mindset 
or, to be more exact, the way in which emotions are reflected upon, so as to better keep them in balance, the creation of inner mental space. Long-term psychoanalytic treatment can also be effective for borderline, although decisive for an indication here is the expression of borderline organisation and a good consultation with the therapist. Psychoanalytic treatment involves learning through relationships, a corrective relational experience, that while the therapist is at once devoted and available emotionally, he or she is indeed not perfect. Yet, this does not mean that the relationship tears, that the therapist endures anger and hatred without retaliating or destroying the relationship. If therapy is successful, it is possible to catch up on some developmental steps that were forestalled or destroyed by early trauma. And out of a trek along a narrow ridge, a somewhat broader footpath can emerge. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.